Hey, it's Todd Perry, co-host of Allison and Todd After Hours on Patreon. And I'm biased, but the show's up there with my favorite Allison Rosen podcast. Top three, at least. Why? Because of the fun topics. We've already discussed getting caught having sex, perverted teppanyaki chefs, filling yourself, Gen Z slang, slay, why Allison needs Ben Gay, astrology, the Adam Carolla show, hip pastors, a fight we had with a prominent politician, backhanded compliments, death, and why German men sit when they pee. Like, well, I can't stand in peace. So he thought it was like sort of showing off as if I'd be like, oh, bite my fist. Like, man, I wish I could do that. Start now and get two shows a month for just two bucks at patreon.com slash Allison and Todd. Not sure if you're ready to subscribe? Check out hours of free previews at patreon.com slash Allison and Todd. Allison with one L, Todd with one D. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another exciting episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here in my studio with return guest and my former coworker, Elise Lunin. She is the author of instant New York Times bestseller on our best behavior. It's on our best behavior, right? Yeah. What's yeah. the what's the part Seven. that comes after? The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. Yes. Yeah. She's the author of that book. She's also the ghostwriter of many, many, many other books. She is uh was formerly at Goop. She is the host of Pulling the Thread podcast. And she and I used to work at Time Out in New York together. And she's also been at like a million other magazines. She's lived so many lifetimes. <laughs> Please put your hands together for Elise Lunin. <laughs> Oh, this old burp was. Yes. It'll, um, it'll get laid in after. And also, full disclosure, that's not the first time we started the show. We started it 20 seconds before, and I introduced, <laughs> I introduced her as Elise Noonan, which is so strange. I like it. It feels Seinfeldy. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Elise Noonan. Hi. So Welcome. Nice to be here Good again. To s- I know. Last time you were here was like right before the pandemic. Yeah, I it, think it was maybe even February 2020. It was very close to pandemic. It would have been early because I feel like I came here after the Goop Lab came out on mm-hmm. Netflix. Yes, that's and right. So it was either January or February because yeah. it wasn't March. Right. And we discussed that you and Joel Stein and I should get together and hang out because we both know him. And then it never happened because of the pandemic. However, he comes on my show all the time now. He's like a regular on my Thursday group show. Did you see that he just launched a Substack? I saw that hours ago. I just want to take credit for that. Oh, did you encourage that? Yeah, we had lunch last week and I um, insisted. I'm a real proselytizer for Substack. So I, um, I introduced him to someone over there and pushed him out the door. I love Joel. He's the best. The best. Wait, how many times have you hung out with him since you came on my show? I mean, not many. We did this. Wait, that sounds like more than one, though. Okay, so, well, I hadn't seen him in forever. And then we did a menopause summit together. (gasps) He talked about that on the show where where he he gave a speech. He gave a speech mansplaining menopause. And I I have to say it was amazing. And the comic relief we all desperately needed after listening to... 50 panels about HRT <laughs> and um and lubricants mm-hmm. and um, yeah. you can just imagine 
anxiety. Right. And then there was Joel. So, um, yeah, we hung out for a better part of the day at a menopause mm-hmm. summit, which is perfect for him. He made it sound like he didn't exactly know why he was there, but that he had crushed it. He did crush it. <laughs> and yeah, I think he was confused. Mm-hmm. And because he was, I think there was, there were maybe two men there, maybe two men on different panels. I think uh-huh. both bearing a an MD after their names and then Joel. <laughs> did you bring him on? No, but we were we were used as bait for each other. So mm. I was told that he was going to do it and he was told that I was going to do it before either of us ever said we were going to do it. Okay. You know? I'm going to overlook the fact that you guys clearly behind my back I know. got together despite the plan that we all had to get together. No, it's fine. It's totally fine. Well, you've seen I've seen many I know times. as I was saying it I was realizing but I also You haven't invited but not me socially. to be part of your I know. show. I know. Well, now you're going to get an invitation. Yes. Um, what were you doing at the menopause panel? I was talking, (laughs) I was doing a, it was before my book came out, but I was talking about the chapter on envy and women and, um, why getting in touch with our envy shows us what we want at a time when so much, so few of us, I think, know what we want. Mm -hmm. Do you know what you want? (sighs) Well, I know what I wanted. Mm. Um, but it's changed a bit and I don't know if it's changed because life has beaten me down mm. or if I've gotten more clarity around what actually makes me happy. I think it's maybe, maybe it's the latter, but I got there because I couldn't get the things I thought I wanted maybe. Um, but I, I know that it doesn't feel comfortable to articulate what I want ever, right? It feels like you're setting yourself up to be humiliated. It feels like overly ambitious. Yes. Um, but then also, you know, there's that like, put it out into the universe thing too. I don't know. Where are you with all of this? I mean, this is, this was the genesis for this book because um, it came out of a, a just a conversation with I don't know if you've ever had Lori Gottlieb on yes, your show. Yes, I have. Okay. So it was a conversation with Lori Gottlieb. It was a small moment, and maybe you should talk to someone, where she says that she tells her clients to pay attention to their envy because mm-hmm. it shows them what they want. And this, you know, when you read something and you just, it's like a, it's like a pike in your brain. Like you just can't, it's yeah. like shrapnel mm-hmm. and you can't get it out. And that's how I felt Like a about- song stuck in your head or like a pain? Both. Okay. Like, I just couldn't stop thinking about that. Mm. Both because I was like, I had this immediate visceral reaction of, I don't have any envy. Oh. I don't envy anyone. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't have that. Right. Like, th- this does not apply to me. This does not apply to me. A very strong reaction, mm-hmm. which, of course, made Means me think. something, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, secondly, I c- couldn't figure out from that, like, I, I had no idea what I wanted. Mm. And I could sort of maybe describe some surface ones, but they were typically oriented around other people. You know, I want my kids to fill in the blank. I mm. want my husband to fill in the blank. And everything that I named was somehow in service Mm -hmm. to someone else rather than something that I inherently wanted. Because as women, you know, the deepest, some of the deepest programming is that 
we shouldn't have wants for all those reasons you name. Right. That we should subjugate our wants to other people's needs. And so that that just really bothered me mm-hmm. as sort of a like, is this what's alive in me? Mm. Is this is this what's alive in me? And when I interviewed her and we talked about it, she talked about how often we will deprecate the object of our envy in order to make ourselves feel better. And I was like, of course, this makes perfect sense. And now mm. I can know how to reverse engineer both to figure out what I want and where I'm envy because I can identify in myself those very shameful moments where I just say things like, I just don't like her mm-hmm. or she rubs me the wrong way or who does she think she is or her book isn't really that good or I don't know why her podcast is so successful. Whatever it is, mm-hmm. a litany of just uh, – deprecations right to make myself better yeah that this and recognizing that it's envy and that instead of diagnosing it examining it using it for information oh she's doing something that i want to do she Mm -hmm. has something that i want that our instinct is to suppress and repress it and then project it and all of these all of the sins, even regardless of religion, the book really has nothing to do with religion. It's about how religion becomes culture and then seeds itself into us. Mm. And then we whisper it into each other's ears, but how they all overlap and then diagram with each other. So going back to what you said, envy and pride are very closely correlated. And I think a lot of women recognize if I'm ever in a position where I'm seen and celebrated, I will inspire envy and I will be destroyed mm. and put back in my place. Even just a tiny amount of like, I just did a podcast on Zoom, not my favorite way to do it. I was a guest and I, it was a male host, two women. And at one point she's like, I've I, I think she said, like, I feel like I'm talking too much. And then at another point, I felt like I'm shining. Not sh- not like shine. Look, even now I'm deprecating myself. Yes. But I, f- I feel like I'm holding court too much. And then I got real quiet. Yeah. And it's like, even in, from moment to moment, in, it, you know, in light of your book, it got me thinking, have I ever heard a man on my podcast say, did I talk too much? Because I hear women say it all the time, but I hadn't processed it as male versus, or, or, you know, I hadn't thought about who's saying it, but I'm on my show when I'm interviewing, which is this show, for a second, I forgot. uh, I'm frequently saying like, no, that's why you're here. But I don't think I'm usually reassuring men. No, it's, and I hear this from other female podcast hosts all the time. I feel like I talk too much. It's like, it is your show. Mm -hmm. Also, people are tuning in specifically to hear you. And, and yet that's the instinct, even though all the, which I of course can't sort of readily cite the actual statistics, but all the social research around meetings and who's talking. I mean, the men are just cacophonous. They just (laughs) drown out women. Yeah, And yet we feel so much anxiety. And it is the anxiety, for me, at least, I have identified this in myself, like it is the anxiety of I don't want a backlash against me mm-hmm. for being too, too much, too much, too seen. Mm-hmm. And this is too loud, too loud. This is the playbook. So you th- can think about almost any public figure, female figure, celebrity, female founder, 
And you can most likely trace their arc as we celebrate them at the beginning, as they rise, they reach a certain point of relevance and visibility. Mm -hmm. And then we destroy them. It's like a, it's a playbook. It's, it's routinized in our culture. It's something that we all recognize and, and and sort of get that schadenfreude hit from. Mm -hmm. Women attack these women as well as men. And we can say, oh, it doesn't really matter. It has nothing to do with my civilian plebeian life, but it does. It's a playbook. This is so big in our mm-hmm. culture, tall poppy in the poppy field, right? putting someone back in their place. She's too big for her britches. She started believing her own hype. She believed her own hype. She's on a high horse. Whatever it is, we are so quick to size women back down and destroy them and blame mm-hmm. them for it. It's why I haven't, I mean, I haven't done any research into this at all. And I'm not a, I'm not a Swifty. Um, I admire her from afar, but I honestly don't even know if I know a single song, which is embarrassing. You probably, do you spend any time looking at TikTok? Um, yeah. Then you probably do know her songs. You just don't re- Re- know, recognize you know them. them. Yeah. yeah. But I think about the the Swifties, for example. And to me, that feels like a very natural response to this pattern mm-hmm. where they essentially are like, I, we will destroy you if you come for her. Oh, yes. Because I, I I thought this was headed towards like, there's backlash against her. And I'm like, I have not seen that yet. But yes, I know what you mean. Yes. No, I think they're, there's vis- a, they're, they're, they're uh, very defensive. Yeah. and I th- But I think it's from a very realistic understanding of what would happen to her absent their protection and support. Mm. And it's pretty wild, actually. Yeah. But that's that's where we are. And, you know, the whole the central thesis of the book is that women are programmed and conditioned for goodness men are programmed and conditioned for power although the book isn't really about men Mm -hmm. but for women the worst thing that you can do to a woman is say that she's bad a bad mother a toxic coworker or boss a bad friend mean selfish um it goes on and on the epithets and Mm -hmm. that's enough to destroy a woman reputationally and send her off stage or get her to resign from her company. Whereas men, it doesn't matter. They can com- commit crimes. And as long as we see them as powerful, mm-hmm. we'll respect them. Yeah. you. Hear, oh, oh, he's an asshole, but. Oh, he's an asshole. There's a lot of, yeah, there's like this, uh, we, f- we forgive a man being an asshole. I'm trying to think of what women are known as. It's like, she's impossible. She's a nightmare, but they're still allowed to ascend. I don't know. Can you think of any? I'm th- I'm thinking. Um I mean did Ellen DeGeneres had she already decided to end her show when all the bad publicity came out about how hard she is to work for? I don't think so. No, it was I, definitely at right. the end. I okay. don't know if that actually got her canceled, but Yeah. I'm trying to think of Oh, that's listeners. Yeah, this can is you a good prompt. Think think of any women who are known to be just nightmares uh and it hasn't affected them at all and i want to know of women who have it's not just reputationally like the reputational slander but it's right. like well i'd be curious to know about the people who are perceived to be bad and then also women who have actually done bad things yeah i mean i've definitely thought about the fact that 
people who get canceled. It doesn't seem like they actually get canceled, but the few ones that I can think of who where it has stuck and it has hurt them. And now, of course, I'm not gonna be able to think of any examples, but I think it's it's women. Yeah, it's 100% women. Because I can list a series of men who have been canceled and they're making more money now. Maybe I mean, not in the mainstream, but they're fine. No. They, and they have tons of fans. Tons of fans. I mean, I was just, I just, and I'm not so... um like aligned with pop culture things i miss everything so um <laughs> but i was on netflix or apple or i'm not sure where and there's louis ck i was like yes. oh his back mm-hmm. um and he actually did bad things yes this isn't even just like oh he's a dick right this is- well same with are you aware of crystalia oh yeah yeah and he has a huge fan base still yeah um yeah. So from the beginning, was it going to be a book project specifically about women? Or at some point, did you realize all these things affect women more? So what I wanted to understand, a few things. One, I would talk about things like patriarchy. And then I would say, it's they, there. And I honestly had no idea what I was talking about. It mm-hmm. was like a, a boogeyman to me. What was? Patriarchy. Okay. I mean, I could understand it in the most sort of obvious way Mm -hmm. but then like the barbie ken way yeah even though i like that movie yeah but but sort of oh i get it and yet is it an inevitability when did it start Mm -hmm. has it always been this way who's like driving the patriarchy now Mm -hmm. is it mitch mcconnell behind a curtain (laughs) you know but like what gives it its its Mm -hmm. enduring power because i felt in my own life, and I'm a privileged white woman, I'll make that clear. But when I looked around in my own life and tried to sort of say, oh, it's the men, mm-hmm. it's the men that are the problem. Because I think right now in our culture, we there's a lot of, of insistence that if, we, if more women are mm-hmm. in charge, and yes, we need equity and we need balance, but if more, we can sanitize patriarchy with, with femininity. Mm-hmm. More women will invariably lead to different outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that might be true to some extent. But to me, it's like a much older and more insidious system that lives in all of us. Right. It's internal. Us. It's internal. And so when I looked at my own life and sort of looked for the men to blame, and I'm not saying that there aren't horribly toxic, misogynistic men running amok amongst us, mm-hmm. but I couldn't locate it. I've mm-hmm. worked for some wonderful men. I've worked for some assholes too. Um, but I couldn't, my own, in my own life, I couldn't understand the complete lack of equity Mm -hmm. that we were seeing in culture. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like we were, because we're very binary, that there was this oversimplification. And I wanted to understand what it was in me that was inhibiting me and what it was in me that would inhibit another woman. And so that's where I wanted to start with mm-hmm. things like the 2016 election, which I don't write about. Mm-hmm. But when Hillary ran, it was so clear to me, I'm sure to many others, like there's no way that she can win, not because there aren't enough men to get behind her, mm-hmm. but but women are going to disown mm-hmm. her. Yeah. And what is that? And it, again, it comes down to, to, I think, some envy of... I would never allow myself to do that. How dare she? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I really wanted to understand. Again, undiagnosed, not conscious, not something that people could admit. But when I would talk to p- 
people, women and men, about her, and they would say things like, I don't like her, Mm -hmm. very rarely could they actually point to a specific behavior besides emails. Right. That they are or a piece of policy. Sometimes it would be the Iraq war, but very rarely could people say something concrete about her. Mm-hmm. And the way that like I look at someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene and she herself, I don't give a shit about her, but I can point to her problematic right. policies and positions. Yeah, no, it's just something about Hillary rubbed them the wrong way, which I did not, nothing about her rubbed me the wrong way. No, like, I love her. Me too. I love her too. <laughs> so it's interesting. So uh, 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 story there was this kid show series of videos on YouTube that Elliot, my older son, was watching when he was a lot younger. It's, it's very popular. I'm not going to say the name. Um, but my, I didn't know that my mom was aware of it, too. But she was aware of it because of uh, my sister's son, who also was into it. And my mom said to me, just a just a throwaway comment, she's like, ugh, the mom is so annoying. Yes. And <laughs> I was stunned Okay, let the record show Elise knew right away what show I meant. <laughs> I was stunned at this comment because I found this woman to be very inoffensive. I also don't watch it enough. So maybe there is something annoying about her. I think that they're her. both odd, both parents, mm-hmm. but I don't find them offensive. Right. There's nothing like that yeah. stands out as, oh my God, she's like yeah. really irritating. And I couldn't, and I was like, why does she bother my mom so much? And then all of a sudden I thought, well, like didn't, oh, you know, she's presenting herself in the world in a complete and in her career in a completely different way than my mom did. Mm-hmm. And I think that that might be underneath it. Or maybe I could have asked my mom and she would have told me all these things. I don't know. But I think it's a similar thing. It's just like it's the externalizing or the projection. Like this person makes me feel bad about myself. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my mom similarly was telling me one day on the phone about this woman at her golf club in Montana, which is where I grew up. And she was like, she just, you know, my mom was just ragging on this woman (laughs) in a way that I was, that was slightly irrational. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to understand, I mean, I was writing this chapter and I was trying to understand it. And she was talking to me about how this woman wears like these ridiculous short skirts and nobody wants to see that. And um, it's sort of like puritanical. I mean, my mom's 70. This woman is her age. She's in her 70s. And I was like, mom, what, what's, what's happening here? And I was like, is it that she, and she was like, I don't, I'm like, are you envious? And she said, I don't know. I don't think so. Like, and I was like, I think there's some envy. Like, what is it? And she was like, I guess, like, I just hate my legs. Oh, and I just don't think anyone would ever want to see them. I know it was very very sweet sweet and sad. Yeah. Yeah. But she was like, I just, I think I'm, yeah. I mean, she wouldn't use the word projecting Mm -hmm. because she's not an Angelino, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, she finally was like, I understand that my reaction to this woman is, irrational Mm -hmm. and but yeah that was really the genesis in some ways of what is it in how does patriarchy live in us how does it show up and curtail our lives outside of the ways that we would sort of presume Mm -hmm. and what needs to be solved internally for us to find ways to get on side with ourselves and each other and what's holding us back 
So when did you realize how the seven deadly sins, and it should be stated, you grew up without religion. Yeah. Um, but the book has a chapter on each. When did you realize that the seven deadly sins apply to this? So it started started with envy and sort of digging into that and that conversation with Lori Gottlieb. And it also started by just listing out the qualities of goodness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and womanhood and, you know, good, a good woman needs no rest and is again, happy, pleased to subjugate all of her wants to other people's needs. In fact, she doesn't really have wants. She doesn't have desire. She doesn't have appetite. Mm -hmm. She needs no, um, affirmation, praise or attention. And she's never upset. (laughs) about any of it. And when I wrote those qualities down and just sort of started to piece them together and then look at the creation of patriarchy, which predates sort of Judeo-Christianity, and then to understand how those two worlds came together, how morality became Mm -hmm. entwined with patriarchy. Because when you look look at something like Hammurabi's Code, which is really our earliest piece of law Mm -hmm. from patriarchal times, it's very misogynistic. What is it? It's like the eye for it's famous for its sort of eye for, eye for an okay. eye. However, it has I can't remember how many laws there are specifically, but it's you'll see things like um if a man commits adultery, he owes the his wife's father a hundred bucks. And if a woman commits adultery, she'll be stoned to death and drowned. Mm. And so killed twice. But um, so there's this extreme women as property Mm -hmm. and also extreme consequences for women, but it's not attached to these ideas of goodness. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't come until Christianity, really. Interesting. The introduction of morality. I hadn't, it's so obvious, but I hadn't considered that like the seven deadly sins are, it's all about morality. Yeah. And you make a really interesting point, which is the commandments are concrete and action oriented versus the seven deadly sins it's much more amorphous like at what point do you cross the line in because obviously you have to eat but what is gluttony exactly and so and that's one of the most significant differences between judaism and christianity with judaism there's law and you don't break that law and with christianity it starts to be any thought that's lustful Mm -hmm. any thought and so it's like try not to think about what Alison Rosen looks like right now but you thought about what you look like like I did yeah <laughs> but it's you it's this idea that any thought regardless right. of Placing action the thoughts, yeah. is pernicious and bad and deviant mm-hmm. and so it's an incredibly um that requires penance and confession and guilt and guilt and so it's very um yeah, there's no, there's no, and it's it's completely, it's it's so disempowering because you, someone can assign it to you. It becomes an exterior adjudicator mm-hmm. rather than like, yeah, I know I did that. Right. And, and it's interesting too, because the seven deadly sins, and again, I didn't know any of this. I assume I went to look for them in the Bible. Um, they're not in the Bible. Yeah, that was news to me as well. Yeah. So- um, I don't know. I was. I'm. I'm. Ha- are you Jewish? 
Yes, but I but I don't pra- I no. don't practice any of it, but yes. Yeah, so my dad's Jewish, my mom's a recovering Catholic. I didn't really grow up inside of any religious culture at all and knew nothing about Jesus, nothing about Mary Magdalene who I've come to love. But I bring up Mary Magdalene because if you go into the early history of the church and of when theoretically he was alive and I don't really care whether they were, you know, having sex. It's not that interesting, but I'm sort of interested if they were. I, I mean, think they were. <laughs> okay. I think they were. He was having a fully human experience. Um, but she is in all of these Gnost- so so in the 4th century the New Testament was canonized. That's when they decided on the four gospels. But there were so many other gospels mm. and they were tossed out, deemed heretical, um and which translates to choice. That's um, what Mm-hmm. heretic is mm-hmm. oh wow mm-hmm. and so those were they were destroyed some of them have been recovered um in recent centuries and so we have these gnostic gospels and these ancient scrolls which are really beautiful many of them are very beautiful but they were not deemed orthodox or mm-hmm. straight um and one of the gospels that was tossed out was mary magdalene's gospel Mm. And it's very beautiful. And essentially, and this is in the New Testament. This is as can it is in canon. So Mary Magdalene is described as sort of his best student, the one he loved the most. Some of that's in some of the other Gnostic gospels. And she was the one to, that he resurrected to. So she was in the tomb with his mother and Mary Salome. They leave. She goes back. On Sunday to the tomb, the doors open. He's not there. She sees a gardener, mistakes, calls out Raboni and realizes it's Christ. He gives her this teaching, which is the gospel of Mary Magdalene. Do, wait, do most people know about this? Because I don't know. Uh, I didn't even know she was in it, where, anywhere with him. She's just, I just know Jesus Christ Superstar. That's the yeah, extent exactly. of it for So she's very obliquely in the New Testament. It mm-hmm. is in the New Testament as it is codified that he resurrected, that she saw him in, okay. in the garden. Got it. But then she comes back to the other apostles and says, I saw him. And then she recounts this teaching in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Well, that's the gospel that's tossed. She's really the first apostle mm-hmm. is the point. She, right. He, he gave her the first teaching, yeah. not Peter. So all that to say, she's also referred to in the New Testament as the one from whom Jesus cast seven demons. Mm. Demon has a very different translation mm-hmm. in sort of in that time than it does now. What did it mean then? Like more like distraction. Like the daemon is like we are all have sort of this inner spirit. Mm. But it doesn't necessarily mean devil right. or um, like something from mm-hmm. hell. And theologians say, you know, well, maybe he was balancing her chakras <laughs> or she would be the most sanctified person in the Bible. Yeah. But she's not that she's not that present in the New Testament. Um, so I bring her up because at the same time that the New Testament was being codified, this desert monk named Evagrius Ponticus, who's also credited as an early father of the mm-hmm. Enneagram wrote down these eight demonic thoughts. The eighth was sadness, which I include in the book, but they sort of, he wrote them down as these distractions from prayer for mm-hmm. monks, and they were passed amongst other desert fathers. And then it wasn't until 590 that 
um, Pope Gregory I, and this all happened in the same homily. He took those eight thoughts, dropped sadness, turned them into the seven cardinal vices, Mm -hmm. and said these are the same vices that Jesus exercised from Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene is the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with her hair, and that woman is a prostitute. It's a lot going on there. Single homily. She becomes the carrier of the seven deadly sins mm-hmm. and a whore. But I thought he got rid of them from her. Well, theoretically, yeah. Yeah. But he um, turns her into a penitent prostitute. And then he's also the pope that um, sort of uh, not abolished, but changed. You know, there was a there was a pro- prohibition against iconography mm-hmm. from the Old Testament. And he's the pope who said, no, you can make religious art. And so that's why we have so many right. visual representations of the sins and also of Mary Magdalene as a penitent prostitute. Now, why do you think – like it's easy for me hearing all this without much context to go, that's just straight up misogyny. Yeah. Is that what that was? Like why do you think he decided she was a prostitute? I think it was straight up misogyny. Mm-hmm. I think he did a lot of – he's an interesting pope because he was the first pope to sort of turn – the va- to create a papacy that also was a civil institution. He did a lot for the poor. Mm-hmm. He did a lot. Um, but yeah, I think it was complete misogyny. Wait a minute. Was she maybe a prostitute though? No. Okay. No. And so it wasn't until like the 80s, I don't remember who the Pope was, who said, oh, she wasn't a prostitute. We kind of messed up. <laughs> and then Oopsie. in 2016, Pope Francis turned her into the apostle to the apostles. Okay. But I think that there she was a threat yeah, to that's this all-male apostolic tradition, okay. which suggests that women can't be priests. Women mm-hmm. can't be – there are very a lot of women who are involved in early Christianity when it was a persecuted sect of Jews, essentially, mm-hmm. um, before it became the religion of Rome. There were a lot of women. Right. Including Mary Magdalene. And so, yeah, they were wiped, essentially. So now where is the other Mary during all this? The Mother Mary? Yeah. I don't know. We don't really know. We don't mm. really know. There's there's a lot of myth-making around Mary Magdalene that she, that she was pregnant with Christ's child, mm. that she went to France. Um, she might have been – I don't know. We don't know. They all, you know, they all scrambled to right. go and sort of preach in different parts of the world. But we don't really know. It's a great mystery, and that's why she's such a focus for – Dan Brown and other storytellers. <laughs> I've actually never seen Da Vinci Code. Should I see it? I don't or read know. It? I haven't seen it in however many years. I don't think I ever read it. Why did they drop sadness? We don't know. Um, he wrote about it. So he's Evagoras Ponticus, this monk in the desert. He went to the desert because he'd been, ha- you know, he's a wealthy man in Carthage or something. I don't remember where. And he had an affair with a married woman. And he took to the desert and, you know, would stand all night in a well of water, you know, other like extremely ascetic actions. Mm -hmm. And so the way that he wrote about sadness and his audience was other monks for all of these things was about homesickness. And um, he wrote about it. He gave sadness a feminine soul. Mm. And so I think maybe it wasn't as applicable. Right. And or it felt like. It's it. There, there's something about sadness that's compliant, yeah, soft, and obedient inherently. Mm-hmm. And so I think they just didn't think it was necessary, right? But I include it because 
not only because I think our culture is drenched with grief and has no real apparatus for um, our sadness and for allowing that to express fully. And then I write about it specifically in the question and response to the question, and what about men? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like sadness is lodged, this fear of sadness is lodged in men and the way that we cut them off from their feelings. Mm-hmm the way that to be sad is weak or feminine is I think destroying men. And I think the primary symptom of it is toxic masculinity and toxic patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, this is the work of psychotherapist Terry Real, but these wounded boys become wounding men. Mm-hmm. And you look at addiction, you look at suicidality, you look at deaths of despair you look at chaos wreaked on culture, it's men. It's men. They are theoretically benefit from patriarchy, the way that it's structured. If you do prioritize power, dominance, control, money, Mm -hmm. sure. But I think that they've paid a big price for that. Mm -hmm. And I think if we were to reimagine a different type of culture – one that allowed feelings that didn't prioritize dominance and oppression, we would have a, I think our men would do much better. You and I both have boys. Yeah. Um, did you want a girl? No. Really interesting. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Um, I am so happy with my children and I would never wish they were someone other than they are. So like the second they got here, um, Actually, that's not true. The second they got here, I this the second they got here, I was like, "What the fuck am I supposed to do now?" <laughs> like, yeah. I did not think this through, and I don't know how to do this, and I'm very overwhelmed, and I'm also sad. Um, but since they've been born, I've never wished they were daughters. But I just was so sure I was going to have a girl, and I had imagined all these things, which really were it was about wanting to heal things that I felt like didn't go well in my own childhood, you know, Mm. like I'm going to do that. Right. I'm going to do that. Right. I'm going to help my daughter through her period. I'm going to be there for her in, you know, a certain way when she gets married. And, um, so in a way, the fact that I had that need, it's probably like better because I don't, it's not fair to like burden, you know, another burden my own child with my own shit in that way. Um, but yeah, I, just always, I was so sure I was going to have girls. Yeah. I think, and to that end, I thought I would, I thought my second um, was would be a girl because I was, I have an older brother and I was, so when I found out he, it was a boy, I was, um, I think I even told my doctor at the time, I was like, well, maybe, maybe he's transsexual. Cause like, I really thought I was going to have a girl. Mm-hmm. And he was like, that's a very, this was a while ago when I had that idea, but uh-huh. What did your doctor say? He was just he. I, my child was like the last baby he ever delivered. Oh. So he was old, and he was just like, "What?" Um, <laughs> he's really confused. Um, he wore bolo ties and um, cowboy oh, boots. Oh wow! Yeah, and but this is an LA doctor. This is an LA doctor. Oh my gosh! But yeah, I don't know how. I don't know where he registered on the political spectrum. But um, but then. Honestly, there was relief because I think as much as you might wanted to have repair, repair your own childhood, I was very conscious about how 
probably triggering and difficult mm-hmm. I would find it to have a girl. Like I feel like there have got to be more minefields with girls. I think it's, it's just, just hard so much, for yeah. either parent to have a same sex. Like mm-hmm. I think having boys has been very difficult psychological work for my husband mm-hmm. in a way that he's not I'm more conscious of than he <laughs> is, but it's definitely been a ride for him. Mm-hmm. And to watch him, my oldest is so soft and sweet and like a walking feeling and he's so delicious. They're both delicious, but Max is particularly delicious and just, you know, the anxiety that this provokes in Rob, who had a very patriarchal father and Rob's, you know, went to RISD. He's not, he's a feminist, um, but he has this sort of extreme fear about Max that Mm -hmm. he won't be accepted and he's going to get bullied Mm -hmm. and this like instinct to, again, turn, we talk about turning boys into men, sort of toughen him up or protect him mm-hmm. before he's before he's hurt by someone else yes. in a way that um I'm very I watch very carefully you know Rob is like I really want Max to be himself and I'm really worried about that well what that will mean for mm-hmm. him which I completely understand um but to that end it makes me relieved not to have daughters because I think I would feel I think inher- inherently you feel criticized in some way by whatever your daughter chooses to be, mm-hmm. unless it's like exactly you. you. That's so interesting. Yes. By the way, it's so refreshing to hear you say this. My husband has very similar feelings. Yeah. Um, I feel like it started even before they were born. Just like the world is only going to become harder and harder and harder, and we have to prepare them to survive in the world. And also we're older parents. We're not going to be here forever. And I'm like, we are, you are getting so far ahead of yourself. But yeah, this idea that like somehow you don't want to, you know, you, you don't want to crush their spirit ever and you want them to be exactly who they are. But if that's going to somehow make them vulnerable, then whereas for me, it's much more just like intuitive and like that'll work itself out. Yeah. You know, work itself out. I think, too, we're in this very strange cultural moment where, and I haven't completely teased this out in my head, so hopefully it makes sense, but where there's this, like, idea that culture should be sort of airbagged for everyone and that nobody should ever hear anything that hurts their feelings or that doesn't confirm who they find themselves to be. Mm -hmm. And um, I understand that idea but that's just not life Mm -hmm. and so i also and i think that we we are inherently resilient or that's what we're built to do and to Mm -hmm. continue to sort of evolve and then get to the place like where i want max to arrive at is to be like oh that's this belongs to me and that belongs to you Mm -hmm. and like it's okay that you have all these feelings about me they're not mine and but that's I mean, that's nuanced, but I do think we're in this moment Mm -hmm. of time where there's this, like, I want to bubble wrap. We need to bubble wrap culture so that nobody gets hurt. And again, going back to sort of the Old Testament and New Testament, I also think we need to start being distinguishing what's 
actually legitimately harmful. Mm-hmm. Right. Versus what's like someone's opinion. Yeah. it All of this is so nuanced. And what I find to be hard about talking about it on air, yeah. probably pri- privately with people who really know me, it's easier. But I myself have said negative things about woke culture yeah. because I feel like it there's down there's look I agree with the uh the basic project of being woke obvious like yeah. I am woke I think I I try to be I'm sure you're like highly woke I strive to, to be woke American. yeah I'm progressive um <laughs> a lot of my best friends are I'm just kidding that's what yeah. I that's what I feel like I sound like right now but I also think they're Look, I, I have issues with some of the uh, execution of various aspects of it, but I am always concerned that on mic, if I try to talk about any of that, then I just sound like someone who I can't stand. Oh, I know. It's very hard. It's really complicated. I think because... Where did you grow up? Uh, Orange County, California. Okay. So I think being a Montanan, which is a rural state... And when I go home, and it's an interesting state, there's, there's you know, uh, a very large and significant population of Native Americans. And then that's almost the extent of, of our diversity. Mm-hmm. And, but what's interesting in talking about all of this with people when I go home, and I grew up in a liberal college town, so most of the people I'm around are highly progressive but then I have friends who are more rural and more mm-hmm. conservative, but they just like don't understand this part of the conversation mm-hmm. because it is so distant. Right. And that's where I'm, I feel like we lose – when we lose our durability or our resilience or our ability to have conversations with each other, we're just losing, again, like actually – a lot of allies mm-hmm. and yes. people who are sort of like a, on the same page mm-hmm. that yes. And, but who get completely flummoxed mm-hmm. by sort of how far we take conversations right. and how wrong we make them feel yes, and how bad we make them feel. And, and then I think they're like, okay, fine. I guess I'm going to be on this team now. Exactly. So I think we just De- def- completely self-defeat. Like, I love listening to Loretta Ross on this, who does, who talks about calling people in and her point of view is, you know, she's a professor, sort of a radical left professor at Smith. But her point is like, I can work with pretty much anyone, Mm. maybe not the people who stormed the Capitol, (laughs) but her parents were more conservative, Southern, um, uh, I'm trying to remember what her dad did, but sort of like emerged out of, uh, you know, enslavement, but mm. um, were cons- had conservative values. And she was like, some of what we do now would like disenfranchise my own parents mm. who are certainly yeah. on our side. Right. So I don't know. It is really difficult to talk about any of it, but I am obviously acutely interested in these ideas of good and bad mm-hmm. and the way that we weaponize them. Yes. And the ways that we make each other bad mm-hmm. and that the ways that that so becomes armor, or becomes the way that we try to armor ourselves with goodness and perfection that makes us quite fragile. Um, 
Whose approval ultimately do you think you're seeking? Me. Um, ooh, that's a great do question. Do you think you're seeking? I mean, that's what I'm hearing in this. And, and I have this in myself too. Like, if you're good enough, then. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I think that I have some sort of, I have so much internal anxiety around so many of these issues mm. that I'll be, you know, I was talking to a friend, an older woman, and I was like, but everyone likes me. And, you know, I'm really kind. And she was like, you don't really believe that, do you? <laughs> I, mean, I can see your expression right now. <laughs> and uh, she was like, you don't really believe that. And is that actually like, do you actually even care if everyone likes you? Oh my God, I would love everyone to like me. I know. But it was like this moment where she was like, you're such a naive idiot. But, um, <laughs> Wait, what part was she saying you don't really believe? Like, you don't really believe that everyone likes you. Oh, okay. And she's like, I'm sure there are people who want you dead. <laughs> and I don't know. There was something about that. Because I think that where I realized that there's sort of the way that we perform ourselves for the world and the self-consciousness that I think is inherent to, I think, primarily women. Mm -hmm. I'm certain. I'm sure there's some of it with men, too. But the way that we cushion ourselves and or you know it's like adam grant writing an op-ed i don't know a couple of months ago this is i wrote about this in my chapter on pride about how much i hate the way that women are um scolded mm -hmm. for not negotiating for ourselves and for um using he taught he wrote about it as weak language you know i just I just had a thought, or you probably mm, already thought about right. this. I was or, just wondering. I was I just wondering. Um, this is probably stating the obvious, but have you considered, you know, all the things that we do? Again, that's, so he scolded us for that. No, he oh. wrote an essay saying like weak language has a purpose. Oh, okay. And it's like, yes, thank you, Captain Obvious. I mean, <laughs> Adam writes great stuff, but. It's this like the way that we perform mm -hmm. our humility, the way we perform our likability, the right. way it's it's a performance and a projection. Yeah. And I think there's always that gap between what we wish we could say. Right. Which is, you fucking idiot. You know? I was right from the beginning. Why yeah. didn't you listen to me? Or whatever. Yeah. Whatever I it is. Or just like s taking all of that out mm -hmm. and just being straightforward right. and forthright. But we know better. So I, it drives me nuts when people say they sort of put the onus back on us to be right. more forthright. It's so there's a double blind. It's, it's, yes, it's enraging because it's like, yeah. you don't, we know what we're doing. Right. I don't think women lack confidence. I think everyone, of course, has maybe their, their imposter syndrome, but the women I know kind of know that they're. Yeah. yeah no, you, it's like you, it's, I'm trying to think why I speak that way. Cause it isn't a lack of confidence. It's to get your needs met. Yeah, it's to be allowed to say what I'm about to say. Yes. There there are times where I'm being I'm hedging cuz of lack of confidence or something, but typically but it's also like you know, I feel like and this is a this is different and maybe this is actually not bad to use the bad good language. But even in any conflict with my husband or when I'm telling him about how I feel about something that relates to him and me, 
I feel like I've got all this, like all these textbooks in my head of like, use this kind of language, make sure to do this and do this, you know, do like, you never want to put someone on the defensive and blah, blah, blah. And eventually we get to a point where we're just speaking totally openly, but like how to talk, how to communicate is very, is like in my head all the time. Yes. Is that how it is with you? Yes. And some of it's good, Mm -hmm. you know, to your end, like, I love, I, you know, in the anger chapter, I write about um, Marshall Rosenberg, who wrote Nonviolent Communication. I don't know if you've ever read that book. No, but it's been recommended. Yeah, it's good. It's like kind of obtuse and hard to follow, but there's some really good stuff in there. But he talks about anger and essentially how essential anger is. Mm-hmm. It's definitely sublimated in most women. It's very unwanted. Men are allowed to express it all over the place. And, but women, you know, we're called crazy, shrew, mm. bitch, hag, uh, a million epithets. Mm. In fact, like, and even when men are told, we call them son of a bitches and mm. bastards. It's oh, right. It's still, still about women. It's still about women. Like Harriet Lerner's book on anger is amazing um, in that context too. But he talks about, Marshall talks about, um, Anger, you know, is essentially, it's an animating emotion. It shows us when our needs aren't being met. It shows us what our boundaries are. But what happens typically is like it either builds to a volcano because we're so bad at processing it Mm -hmm. regularly. And then we look to place it. It's like we blame. We blame Mm -hmm. a person. We blame a situation or we blame ourselves. And that's not to use his words, emotionally liberating. And so what he coaches is to, and this requires work because it's really sometimes hard to figure out why you're angry. Um, But is to say, I am angry because I am needing Mm. fill in the blank. For you to stop being an asshole. Just kidding. Exactly. (laughs) For you to respect my space. (laughs) Yeah. Um, For you to change. Yeah. For you to not speak to me like that. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, but it and it inherently sort of lowers the temperature because then the person's not in an immediate defensive. Right. It's right. not making the other person mm-hmm. bad. So, okay. Lust, anger, greed. Gluttony. S- gluttony, sloth. Pride, envy. Which one would you say is the the like the one that you have the most issues around or like mm-hmm. the hardest one for you anger has been really hard for me to even acknowledge mm-hmm. that i have it i'm still working on it um it's so foreign to me even though i think it's a huge part of who i am mm. and so i i have not mastered that sloth and gluttony are so available i think to all of us they're just examples of it all over the Mm -hmm. place. We live in an incredibly fat phobic culture. It's built into all of our medical Mm -hmm. systems, our legal system. Um, It's obviously talked about all the time. In that chapter, do you go into theories of why culture is so mean to fat people? Um, Well, I think a huge part of it is gender, class, and race. Mm -hmm. So I think that Fat phobia now is like another form of racism and classism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and then I think that, you know, there's so much around the one thing that we know about obesity, which is not a nice word, but um, 
is that we don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. And yet there's this prevailing pernicious idea that it's really just laziness and gluttony. Right. When all the research suggests that we're actually eating less and moving more. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's just this like, let's just tell people that it's their McDonald's Mm -hmm. and it's their TV and it's their, there's just so much insidious and pernicious. Yeah. Like I've been, I, you know, I've been wondering, (laughs) I've been wondering, I don't know what I'm, um, is, I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to say as I'm saying it. Um, Like on a deep level, does someone who takes up more space make, does it feel like it's out of control? Does it feel like they, is, is it a, you know, a, the, all these, is it a moral thing? It must yes. be. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that these people theoretically are like bucking trends. Right. They're disobedient, mm-hmm. non-compliant, deviant. They have no discipline. Mm-hmm. They have no self-control. Right. Um, yes, we essentially equate morality with thinness. Mm-hmm. And quote unquote, having a good body, which right. requires self restraint and um, self love. I mean, I say that with a lot of scorn, but that's the way that it's sold right. to us. Right. That if you cared, if you yes. were a good citizen mm-hmm. and you weren't going to be sort of a burden on taxpayers <sighs> with all of your chronic diseases, mm-hmm. then you would move your butt and eat virtuously. Like there is so much virtuosity mm-hmm. ascribed to totally. thinness. And most of us know like uh, I can eat. It doesn't really matter. My body is going to mm-hmm. do what it's going to do. And then you look at the incidence of trauma and its impact on weight and you look at mindset and weight. And I think we – I mean there are so many theories mm-hmm. for – and there are so many genes. Right. And I write about, um, for example – uh, the work of Bruce Blumberg, who writes about this PhD named Mike Skinner, who studies, you know, there are lots of obesogenic chemicals. So he studies um, DDT and mm-hmm. mice, which was very prevalent in the 50s, mm-hmm. was in every woman, essentially. And when they look at it in mice, for example, the next, the first generation has some birth defects, but the second generation of mice are obese. That's so interesting. So you think about sort of what's happened in our, the, the mm. chemicals that we're all swimming in and how those impact our bodies. Then you think about mindset. So um, the BMI, I don't remember exactly what year, but the BMI is this very rudimentary mm. tool developed by an ethnographer. It's not, it was never meant as a health measure. And as we know, like, you can have perfectly healthy blood work and have a high BMI mm-hmm. and vice versa. If you have a lot of fat around your your organs, you can develop type 2 diabetes regardless of your weight. Oh, right. Visceral fat. Visceral fat. Yeah. And then a lot of subcutaneous fat, fat that's right by your skin is not harmful. Mm-hmm. Like in fact, it can be health protective. Mm-hmm. So – um, but so when they shifted the BMI standards, I don't remember, maybe this was two decades ago, mm-hmm. they just shifted them. And suddenly, I mean, millions, many millions of Americans woke up and found that they were no longer, quote unquote, normal, but right. were overweight mm-hmm. and vice versa. And so I was just interviewing on my podcast, Ellen Langer, who's sort of the queen of mindfulness. She's a, a psychology professor at Harvard. She's done every incredible study about um, not meditation, but like the impact of the brain on the body, like this um, 
counterclockwise study and the study on uh, hotel um, staff who change rooms. And once they told them how much exercise they were getting, like they just started dropping pounds. Oh, and, that's so interesting. Yeah. They just didn't equate it with exercise, mm-hmm. but everything else was the same, but they just had a mindset shift. Yeah. And, but so she was talking about, for example, research shows that with people who are, when they do blood work, and let's say, I'm probably getting these numbers wrong, but if you're 5.9, you are in the normal range. And if you're six, then you're pre-diabetic. Mm-hmm. And that when they trace these people over time, and statistically, there's no difference between right. 5.9 and 6. Yeah. But when they trace these people over time, the people who are told that their blood work is normal stay normal. Mm. And the people who are told that they're pre-diabetic become diabetic. Mm-hmm. That there's something about being told what you are right. that the becomes label. a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's that in our culture too. It's yeah. like – you're going to tell me now that I'm overweight? Okay, mm-hmm. I guess I'm overweight. Right. I don't know. That's really interesting. Um, so, and I think this came up a little bit at the last time you were on, but when we worked at Time Out New York, I thought of you as like this very uh, <laughs> cool fashion person. That's and you worked in like fashion and shopping and yeah. that kind of stuff for a while. Um. But now I know you more as an academic, really, like an an intellectual academic font of knowledge. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, Did being now I don't know how much you ever were like truly the this the person that I thought you were like fashion person. No, I think you were. Um, Did that ever feel like an ill fit? Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I have always loved stuff. And I wanted to be a fashion designer when I was a little kid in Montana. I think much of it was born out of not having access to much and Mm -hmm. just sort of like fantasizing, like getting W Magazine (laughs) and um, just like dreaming about the day I could go to a Gap. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so very much from the place of being sort of an outside in observer of culture And then what happened, honestly, is that after I graduated from college, I moved to New York. It was 2002, and so there were no jobs. And um, my brother's a book editor. I thought – I think at that time – I don't know what he was doing at that time, but I was like, I just want to work with words. Mm -hmm. And I got a job miraculously. It took me eight months. I don't remember. It was hard. It was a long time. It was scary. It was sleeping on – a friend's brother's floor. Um, But I got a job as a freelance assistant at Lucky Magazine, Mm -hmm. which was a just-launched magazine at Condé Nast. And I was so grateful. And it was fun. And I loved, like, and it was all about style and affordable fashion and small independent labels. And so it was, like, kind of intoxicating. Mm -hmm. But I was, I covered stores, the internet, So I gave many bloggers their first press and sort of these small nascent online boutiques. It was such Mm -hmm. a strange time. And so I wasn't in the fashion closet. I was just a little adjacent, Mm -hmm. but interested in that sort of like I could find something to buy anywhere. I was such a compulsive shopper at the time. Um, Are you still? mm -mm. Mm -hmm. Nope, not at all. And um, 
I think it was part of it was just like coming out of a childhood where my parents were incredibly indulgent about books and education mm-hmm. and extracurriculars, but it was, but not about like buying us things. Mm-hmm. And so I think I had all this pent up desire. Right. And, and it was right when H&M and, you know, it was like such a time mm-hmm. of just buying things. So I think that sort of, I had a fever, fever-like attraction to just like having a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't, like growing up, I feel like we just didn't have that much stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Don't you feel like as a child, like that wasn't a norm to have as but much stuff as we have now? It's so easy to get so much cheap stuff now. Yes. Like I feel like we are constantly buying bits of plastic online for yes. my kids. Uh, no, I remember my mom getting out like clothing catalogs. Yeah. And then we'd go through and circle items in the back and then she'd get on the phone and call them. Yeah. And that was like maybe like once every two years we'd do that or something. Yeah. Like, no, the stuff was more precious back then. It was so much more precious. Like I wore hand-me-downs. We had a department store. and What was it? Um, Le Bon Marche. Mm. And you could get a spree. I loved Esprit. I mean, that was the dream. Yeah. So I would get like one Esprit outfit or um, like a Benetton outfit, um, you know, for my birthday. Yeah. I wore the same thing in like four class photos in, <laughs> in a row. But stuff lasted. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We're really sounding old. But um, <laughs> but I think I just had this like, oh, my God, I can yeah. have a lot of stuff mm-hmm. finally. Um, but it was never – I, you know, being at Lucky – and I was freelance, which allowed me to afford to work there because I paid less tax and they paid me more than you did on staff. Mm-hmm. And then I was desperate to find another job in the building. But everyone I spoke to was like, you're kind of better. You're doing more where you are than mm-hmm. if you were answering someone's phone at right. the fair. But And it was honestly, it was really good for me because I, I think I would have snobbed out. And there was something. <laughs> did you, I mean- Like my dream was always cover, not maybe not cover, but like to write for Vanity Fair or New Yorker or or like Rolling Stone cover or something like that. Yeah. So did you? you, New Yorker. Yeah. New Yorker, Vanity Fair. Mm -hmm. Like that's where I wanted to be. And um, but yeah, instead I was writing, um, you know, fifty word. It's very similar to Time Out, and Mm -hmm. like it's for people who I don't. We we were just talking before about whether Time Out exists anymore, but in the magazine world everyone of any quality. Mm-hmm. No, but Time Out was like a talent machine. Yeah. Because you have to learn to write tight, mm-hmm. short, non-repetitive. Fast. Fast. You know, it's a weekly of just so much content. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we're all used to the internet. But right. at the time, it was like a totally different type of magazine. But it was just such good training. Um but yeah, so I, you know, had writing a bag guide, write about a hundred handbags mm-hmm. and do not repeat a word. Right. Make every sentence revelatory, make it funny. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard. It's a lot easier in many ways to like let it rip in mm-hmm. a six thousand yes. word piece on ceviche. Right. Yeah, there you could not be indulgent at all mm-hmm. at time at New York. And then also, and I wonder, does this happen at all magazines? Like you'd write your thing and then you'd get a note from someone in the art department like can you cut you know 15 yeah. words yeah Make does that happen in all magazines yes yeah yeah 
No, you had to cut to fit the the layout. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there was no throat clearing, no nothing superfluous. It's excellent training. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I just sort of stayed there. Then I went to timeout. Then I went back to Lucky to do um, shopping guides to different cities in the world, which sounds really glamorous and it was fun, but it's also very lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to hang out in Paris by yourself for ten days, walking. 14 miles a day, eating all of your meals by mm. yourself. Like, I, I liked it, but... Right. Also, lonely. Lonely. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time you were doing all this, was part of you thinking, like, I want to ask bigger questions? That's interesting. Like, were there seeds of what you're doing now then? Then? Not really. I think that I... I think that I scratched all of those itches just by reading other people. And I, you know, grew up reading a ton and venerating writers. I still mm-hmm. don't really call myself a writer. Um, and in part because like I never, I never really, I didn't write bylined. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't write for bylined magazines mm-hmm. and I didn't really have that career where anyone cared what I thought. Mm-hmm. So interesting, actually. But I think I just scratched that itch through reading and um, and then ultimately podcasting mm-hmm. was really the first time where I wasn't behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that was at Goop. Although prior to going to Goop, I really, I, it's funny because we were talking earlier and I was like, oh my God, I was working at this company in LA and we would buy podcast advertising. <laughs> we probably bought pa- podcast advertising on your show. Um, what was the company? It was called Shopzilla. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. You, probably, you probably did. <laughs> we had so many different sites and we were, but I was so interested mm-hmm. in podcasts. And I just remember it was like podcast one. Yes. And you were there. And I mean, it was such a small industry, but that was to me, I've really felt like that that was interesting. And um, but yeah, it wasn't until I was I we started the Goop podcast, which I co-hosted for a number of years, that I really got to actively engage and have the resonance or reassurance from the people listening that I ask good questions mm-hmm. and that I asked the questions that they wanted to know the answers to and that I was brave. Mm-hmm. And ask the things that they felt too scared to ask, and so that felt good. Um, and also, sort of like the push I needed mm-hmm. to allow myself to be seen more, and to that maybe after writing twelve books for other people, <sighs> I could write one for myself. Was it scary? Yeah, it still is because uh, for all the reasons that we've talked about, like my book. It's been well-received. It's doing well. Everyone likes you. Everyone loves me, Allison. (laughs) I am everyone's new best friend. Oh, no. Never. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure at a certain point, I mean, I still think I'm, you know, sort of laying low, but um, at a certain point, I'm sure people will come for me. I don't know. It's, who knows? Do you feel like that? That, that, that? That people will come for you? Um, do I feel that way? Or do you feel like you've been doing this for so long that if it were to I happen- feel like I feel like if something happened to give me 
a sudden blast of visibility, which, by the way, I'm open to that thing happening, um, then there might be a backlash. But I feel like I'm kind of like, I'm not in people's faces right now. Yeah. So um, I don't I don't think about it that much. But, you know, I did experience when the whole stuff with Corolla went down um, that I had a lot of haters suddenly. Yeah. So I've been through that already. Um, and sometimes I think like, it's so much more peaceful now. Yes. But at the same time, like being number one on the charts, I wouldn't mind that again. Right. Oh, I hear you. I think though that there's, and this is what I would observe about you, and I think that there's safety in this, or at least I tell myself that there's safety, is that I work really hard to make sure that I am not creating like an image of myself that Mm -hmm. I put out into the world that's divorced from reality. Yeah. And because I think that people can sense that vacuum or that Mm -hmm. chasm when it exists. And then there's like a natural tendency to be like, what's happening? Mm -hmm. And this doesn't, this doesn't cohere here. Right. Like you are not always like you brought up Ellen. Like, I think people were sort of like, something's amiss. Yeah. Yeah. And I get it, like, particularly for people who have to host a TV show mm-hmm. and dance yeah, and be a dancing puppet. Mm-hmm. But I think that when you when there's too much of a, a separation between who you are and who you pretend to be, mm-hmm. you make yourself very vulnerable. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Versus what I do and I think what you, what you do is – we're honest about yeah. the darkness. Yes. That sounds so grandiose, but still, I do like, I don't pre- present myself as perfect at all. Um, but just to, to be fully honest, therefore, like, I do try so hard to be good. Yes. And so then when I get a little bit of hate or criticism, a lot of it rolls off at this point, but sometimes it's just like, are you fucking kidding me? I know. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you know, like I'm one of the good people. I know. So why are you correcting me? I know. I know. It's, it's really strong. I think, and I don't, I, my mission or what I care to do now is just try to build my tolerance to that type of feedback Mm -hmm. where it doesn't make me crumble. Yeah. And it's really hard, but I I can recognize I've had enough criticism having worked at a a highly polarizing brand for a long time that I can recognize when something has sort of is something I need to hear Mm -hmm. and look at deeply. Right. And what's a projection or in the case of envy, I can look at a feedback and say, oh, this person wants to have a podcast Mm -hmm. and they just don't haven't recognized that. Right. And so their criticisms are coming from a place of like, who did, why you and mm-hmm. not, why not me? Yes. And with podcasting, it's like, well, it could be you. You can totally you right. could start a podcast tomorrow and you should, right. you know? Okay. So in light of the, what you say about envy and the seven deadly sins and things, it's gotten me thinking about Julia Allison. Mm. Oh my God. I haven't she, thought about her in forever. Oh, you haven't? No. Okay. She's back in the news. Uh, because do you know who Taylor Lorenz is? Yes. In her book, I guess there's like a chapter on Julia Allison. 
um, or a chunk about Julia Allison and how she really was ahead of her time and she kind of invented the influencer culture before it existed. So that was in Rolling Stone. They excerpted her book. And uh, a friend and I both read it and, and it made us feel like, God, I feel like bad for not recognizing who she was at the time. Oh my God. So interesting. Then there was an article. There was just an article about her in the New York times about her and her fiance, who is, is he a professor or he's like something very intellectual. He's I think 11 years older than her. And she was a burning man feeling unlucky in love and someone had been trying to set her up with him. And so she called him right then and there. And for days and days and days, they talked on the phone. And then he went to pick her. She flew to Cambridge where she lives with him now. She flew to Cambridge and he went to to pick her up at the airport and he just saw her dancing in a patch of grass. She was, in, you know, allowing herself to feel joy. And now she has redecorated their house and they have a send a manifesto about their house to people. It's like, it's so much, it's so much. Um, but I w- it got me thinking the backlash against her. And I don't ever know that there was ever a lash against for, you know, I mean, she's, she's, she presents herself as someone. I don't, does she present herself as someone to be mocked? I don't know if I would say yeah, that yeah. kind of. I mean, she's she's a character. She's a character, and she's always been a character. And it's so funny. I edited her column mm-hmm. at Time Out, and and she is like equal parts endearing and infuriating mm-hmm. because she was always late, <laughs> and it was always sort of a mess. Um, but also like not a mean person, mm-hmm. and. And to me, it was just interesting to observe her as this lightning rod that people were fascinated by. Right. Because, you know, she was... So for anyone who doesn't know who she is, when we were in New York, she was everywhere. Um, Gawker wrote about her all the time. She was like... She was like... She was like a a socialite in a way. I don't know. How would you even describe her? I don't even know how to describe who she was. An early influencer. Yeah. Because she she wasn't part of society. She went to, I believe she went to Georgetown where Mm -hmm. she wrote this like sex in this. She was like sex sex on on the the hill. Yes. And she would take pictures of herself in a tutu on her laptop, like very much modeled after. I the tutu is very. Candace Bushnell. Yes. uh, Carrie. My God, what's Carrie's last name? Bradshaw. Carrie Bradshaw. Yes. She was like a version of that that was openly, it was, it was, but, and she was very appealing to men. She was very pretty. Very pretty. Very well put together and seemed to have a sense of humor about herself, like in a way, um, but tons of pictures of herself that were very posed. Yes, and she Throughout was very yeah. early mm-hmm. to do this she, in a way yes. that it, it would look very str- – I mean, it was strange She called it life casting, actually. I didn't realize that. And she had wa- – this was in the in the Taylor Lawrence article. She uh, wanted to, like, live in a house with two other influencers. Like, she the, the idea of, like, a collab house, she kind of invented that, apparently. I didn't know. 
I think she was on a dating show. Oh, yeah, she was. In Misadvised. Misadvised. Because yeah. she was a dating columnist mm-hmm. who couldn't find love. Right. She wrote a dating column for, for Time Out New York. But yeah, she was a fascinating cultural phenomenon. She was on the cover of Wire, mm-hmm. but was always sort of dressed like a little girl, mm-hmm. but beautiful, smart, but diminishing of her own intelligence in the way that she... But then who's to say, right? But I will say... I'm actually friendly with her. I haven't talked to her in a long time, but like we were friendly. I'm hesitating to say this because it's, uh, I don't know. I feel like it's a little bit ugly, but the feeling when she got that column was like, this is unearned. Mm. She's not a real writer like the rest of us. Oh, I'm sure. You know, and I feel like, I guess what I'm wondering is, is part of the backlash against her through the prism of your book, is it because she gives herself permission to do things that the rest of us don't? Or is it this sense of like, there's some aspect of this that's unearned? Because at that time, being an influencer wasn't a thing. So it was like, here's this person who's, who's famous for being famous. Now we're more accepting of that. Now we would get that completely. And I inherit, it wasn't my idea. I think she, Brian, the editor in chief at the time, had already enlisted her mm-hmm. or was in talks with her. And now, it like, in retrospect, you're like, of course, like, Time Out in New York right. was trying to survive and needed yes. relevance and needed, like, sparkle. Yeah. Right. It, no, it makes sense from a business standpoint. Yes. It's in the same way that when John Mayer was given a column in Esquire. Yes. A lot of people were like, what? I mean, a lot of other writers. Yes. Now now people don't even bat an eye at that. Yeah. No. And I'm sure Julia wouldn't even call herself a writer at this point and was barely a writer then. Yeah, she's fascinating because I think it's a combination. I think it's the, the fact that she was unabashed mm-hmm. and then also that she sort of dresses like – or she would present herself as this sort of sex kitten. Right. Um, objectified idea of femininity, mm-hmm. talking about dating and sex, which I think is – always triggering Mm -hmm. to women yeah, and or feels anti-feminist or like, what are we, what are we, um, what, what's happening here? (laughs) Um, Right. That's very confusing. Right. And right. You're supposed to look like um, Helen. What's her name? Or actually, if you think about Dr. Ruth or like any of, any of the, um, the sex experts out there. And she also like put herself in so much of her work Mm -hmm. in a self-referential way that was unusual at the time Mm -hmm. where it was really about sort of her own. Again, it's very Carrie Carrie Bradshaw. Bradshaw. But, and I think that the fact that it was like, she was aping that so directly and unabashedly Mm -hmm. also felt like, really? Like this isn't original or why are you getting so much attention for this? So I think that a lot of it was like the attention, the, obvious attention seeking which sort of grates against our ideas of like how you're supposed to behave right i think it was like i'm over here being good yes i'm being good i'm doing this all the way you're sp- i worked my way up i did it like why what's happening yes exactly mm-hmm. like this is happening yeah um and oh there was a sh- it, it appears to be like a shortcut so then when i read that rolling stone article recently it made me realize like, oh, she was really working at this in a way. Like it wasn't a shark. I don't know if it was. I don't know. She's her own fascinating. Like she just was fascinating to mm-hmm. me in part because of like 
Yeah. And then I, it's funny now hearing you thinking about her. She, she, we did, we were in touch maybe four or five years ago when she, I think she was involved with a woman. I think this is all public information mm-hmm. on her Instagram. I think she was in a relationship with a woman, had become a burner, was really into psychedelics. And I was like, wow. I mean, yeah. And quite a change. Quite a change. And, had had uh was not in the public eye at all. Yeah. That's what was surprising. So it's interesting to me that she's back. She's back. And I don't and it makes me wonder what's why? Why? <laughs> yeah. I know. You'd think that she would not want that anymore. Mm-hmm. I think she doesn't. So I don't know then. Then like the Rolling Stone story is just okay, this is an excerpt of Taylor Lorenz's book. But the New York Times thing I don't know. Like she obviously, you know, she was a part of that. So, yeah. So interesting. When is, is Taylor Lorenz's book out? I don't know. Okay. I think it's come. It, it either is or it's coming out soon. I think it's called Extremely Online. I think maybe. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm always curious to look at these cultural moments in reverse and sort of try to mm-hmm. un- learn from them. But yeah, she really was and of a kind. And the interview with her her now talking about what she was doing then is pretty insightful. But then it makes me want, I'm like, how much is she looking at it in reverse also? You know, yeah. how much, but maybe it doesn't matter. No, I I think that there's a lot of that in reverse mm-hmm. because I think she was, I think she's a highly instinctual creature. Mm-hmm. And so I think that she was just being Julia yeah. in a way that wasn't, actually that strategic well that's interesting that you say that because that was my sense of it as well yeah however you read this story and she is essentially like and i'm sure seven deadly sins are rippling through my commentary um you read it and it's like oh she invented influencer culture is that true i don't think she invented it i think that she had these ideas before there was scaffolding for it. Yeah. So I think that she was ahead of her time in a lot of ways. I don't, but if what you're saying is right, which is kind of what my gut says, um, it, it wasn't like a grand plan. No. Like it seems now. I think I, and I don't know if she would feel this way now, but my sense of her was that she wanted to be famous, mm-hmm. was slightly addicted to being seen. Mm-hmm. And enjoyed the attention or didn't maybe know who she would be without it. Yeah. And that it, but it wasn't, it wasn't organized right. into sort of a, mm-hmm. like, here's my five year yeah. plan and this is what I'm really doing or exploring right. or being. Oh my God. She's also like getting a master's at, at Harvard now. Of course. She's very <laughs> smart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is. She was such a lightning rod though. It's interesting. Like I became, um, friends with someone who had gone to Georgetown with her. And I remember us talking about, I think he brought it up, like letting me know that he had gone to school with her. And it was just like this discussion of, I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. Do you happen to have a just me or everyone? Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Um, my just me or everyone would be that I drive along with drivers. 
Does anyone do this? Like what if my mean? husband's driving, then I oh. like, I'm like pumping the the gas and mm-hmm. the brake and like twitching. And is anyone else? I don't pump the gas, but I will kind of brake if I feel scared. Yeah. Yeah. No, I drive. I do tandem driving. It drives him nuts. Are you consciously doing this? No, it's just it like just happens. I can like uh, even thinking about it, I can my legs twitching. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I'm gonna try not to knock the table. But do you like when he if he does he ever stop short and like how do you react when you do that? When he does that? Oh, I would freak out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm a terrible passenger. He's a great <sighs> driver, but yeah, I don't think I'm a great passenger either. Cuz I will often say like slow down. <laughs> I do that too. And he's like, I was aware. It's it's always the same situation. It's we're on the freeway and I notice the cars are starting to bunch up ahead of us. Yeah. And it's seen and like he steps on the gas. And so yes. I'm like, and to what that says to me is he's not aware. I think he, I don't, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why he just stepped on the gas, but according to him, he was aware he was going to stop in time. Yeah. No, my husband, similarly, I feel like he he's a great driver, but he accelerates or decelerates at random moments and is not a defensive driver Mm -hmm. in a way that I feel like you really need to be in L.A. And he's also has no idea where he's going. Oh, that's how I am. But yeah. And blows past turns and Mm. doesn't want directions. Yeah. Maddening. That's so interesting. But I do the actual physical. Yeah. Body. Do you ever do you ever do the driving? Yeah. I mean, what sometimes happens is he gets mad and pulls over and makes me drive. Does that happen to you too? No, but there usually is a like, maybe next time you should drive. Yeah. There's never actually been a pulling over. No, that happens frequently. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of Daniel's greatest moments at the expense of our son, um, Elliot gets carsick a lot. Same with my kids. And I thought maybe it's Daniel's driving. Because he also, when he's telling me a story while he's driving, I find that he uses the gas pedal of punctuation a little bit. Mm -hmm. So he's like on and off and on and off. And I'm just like, this is nauseating. So I decided I'll drive this time. We were going, we're driving down to visit my parents. So down in Orange County because of Elliot and Elliot threw up faster when I drove than when Daniel did. I don't know why. But I, that was the proof that like, oh, it's not his driving. Yeah. Sometimes so. I've tr- we've tried, we both try to mm-hmm. um, peg my oldest son's car sickness on each other. <laughs> now we just drive with trash bags. We bought some of those barf bags online that you yeah. go to the hospital. Yeah. yeah. That have the. Yeah, the ring. Have you figured out at all like what triggers it or how to quell it or anything? It feels like it's phases. So um sometimes like for example he'll go to the ocean and be on a boogie board and Mm. be completely fine and then he'll go for like a month every time he pukes Mm. so it's like he goes through interesting but i think he's gonna outgrow it i mean he's 10 now yeah it's definitely gotten better Mm -hmm. but we we go through a lot of dramamine we have dramamine on subscribe and save on we've never tried dramamine oh my god allison we should are there does it make them drowsy or anything we um I try giving them half. Mm-hmm. It makes my youngest drowsy. Yeah, we were on a plane once and Max threw up five times. Oh, my God. And we were like, I think there's a medicine for this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we we, we do. Oh, we should we look into a lot that. of Dramamine. Okay. It can really, I mean, for anything longer than a drive to school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dramamine. Okay. Good tip. Do you happen to have a hey, go fuck yourself? Yeah, I really want all of these 
like male bro wellness podcasters to go fuck themselves. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. I'm just trying to think of who. I mean, there are so many. Yeah. I really want them to go fuck themselves. Tell me why. Well, I think. Oh my God, my brain is exploding with different people. When, as soon as we're done, I have to ask, do you mean this one? Do you mean this one? Do you I mean this one? I probably mean all of them. So I have a couple of, of grievances. Mm-hmm. One, this idea sort of of longevity and biohacking and um, that we should all be so self-obsessed, so focused on self-optimization, so oriented around every wink of sleep and every morsel of food that we can engineer our lives to that degree, right. engineer certainty, mm-hmm. I find offensive on many levels and and just problematic. Again, in this chapter on sadness, it's like, this isn't how it works, guys. Yeah. And stop giving pe- stop willing people to spend their precious mm-hmm. lives right. trying to prolong their lives. Yes. Like to me it's so joyless. Mm-hmm. It's so ridiculous. And then you you see because we're all content creators mm-hmm. that when you pursue that then you're just like dicing information into smaller and smaller bits so that mm-hmm. everything becomes something that needs to be hacked or perfected right. or optimized. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a cultural ill. Yeah, it, it's like selling the drug of control, right? The drug of control. And then my other just general note is that these guys don't interview women. That's true. It's staggering. Staggering. The numbers of the the guesting numbers mm-hmm. are staggering. Yeah. And guess what? Women outlive you. Yeah, women do outlive you. <laughs> it, this isn't how women sort of think about the world. I think gen- just to speak in very general gendered ways, but women, there are more women at in med school than men, um, more women by a significant margin earning PhDs and mm-hmm. sort of biomedical sciences. And yet these guys can't seem to find any women to interview. Have they interviewed any? Oh, a handful. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. It's like 8%. 10 or 11%, mm-hmm. 13%. Um, I think like Sam Harris is 13%. Tim Ferriss, 11 to 13%. Right. Huberman, I think, has the lowest percentage. Mm. Peter Atiyah. Um, it's not good. I don't think that they're conscious of it. Right. But it's it's – there's definitely not a lot of reverence for the perspective of women. Mm-hmm. And typically when they do interview women, they limit them to talk about hormones, mm-hmm. sex, just women's health. Very right. rarely are women on those shows emboldened to speak to health in general. Right. It's just the dominant paradigm. I think we're so um, inured to it. Like we, not, we don't hear it as mm-hmm. a normal, but when you actually go and look at it, it's like, whoa. Right. Shocking. You know, it's so interesting, this whole biohacking, longevity, optimization thing. Like, because Daniel is, I mean, he's not like really into it, but he keeps joking that he's going to go to a longevity doctor because he turned 50. Um, And I see bits of that stuff seeping into the way he's thinking. Um, But I don't know any women who are obsessed with this. Mm -mm. I mean... Huberman says that half of his audience is female. I don't know about that. I don't know. I think it is um, – I think it's a specifically male – and what I think the other reason is it feels like 
wellness, which is so big now. It's like hard to even know what that word means. It has no meaning to me, but it used to be a conversation for women mm-hmm. who had been gaslit or, you know, ignored or were told that all of their symptoms were in their head. Mm-hmm. And so it became a conversation for women by women. Um, and now it feels like it's been just completely co-opted yeah. by men and commercialized and commoditized and like right. distilled into hacks. Mm-hmm. And that's so interesting. It's such a bad word. Yeah. Yeah. Elise. Elise Noonan, just kidding. <laughs> Elise Noonan, it was so nice catching up with you, having you on the show. I can't be wait wait to be back with Joel. With Joel, yeah, and I can't wait to be invited to these luncheons you guys are having. They're really great lunches. Substack lunches. Um, are you on Substack? I am. Okay. And I actually just I'm working on a newsletter right now. Uh, it's been over a year since I've sent one out. Oh my god! <laughs> I know. I really let it lay fallow. Life fellow, it, it, I was not active for a while, um, but I'm getting back into it. And in fact, I read the interview with you on yeah, Substack. I love Substack. So I just turned on paid. Yes. It's good. Which, by the way, for someone like me who's like, here's one, the last one was 14 months ago. I don't know how I can possibly justify turning on paid, but I do feel like there's people who want to just support you no matter what. So I did turn it on. And following your advice, I left it just on the levels. Yeah. That they suggest. Yeah. And I put the old ones behind a paywall. Um, Yeah. No, I'm proud of you because I think, first of all, there are a lot of people who have probably been listening to you for years. Mm -hmm. And besides supporting the sponsors of the show, have no way of supporting you. Thank you. But the truth is, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen is where they all are, which is why it feels greedy. (laughs) It feels uh, it feels weird to turn it on. But at the same time, I was inspired by what you said. I'm so happy to hear that. And I give away um, I give away subscriptions to anyone who asks. No reason provided. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. I'm happy to do it. Um, But I also have found that it it's been good for me in terms of requiring accountability. Mm -hmm. So because people pay me, I'm really scheduled in terms of sending. So how many posts, how frequently do you post? I write one newsletter a week. Mm-hmm. It's pretty short. And then um, I do an occasional second sort of Q&A mm-hmm. or, um, and then I add, I do so much content for Instagram and I, my hope is to eventually get off of Instagram mm-hmm. and to stop creating content for, for them free. to monetize yeah. so that people can't see it. But um, so I take all of that and I put it, I sort of archive it on my Substack because mm. a lot of it's, you know, I do a lot of word videos and stuff like that. Right. That's good. I want to have it in case yeah. I turn Instagram off. Yeah. I love your interest in words because words are my favorite thing in the whole oh. world. Um, last question, even though I was ending a second ago, um, do you ever, did you ever think of going to grad school? Oh, I have so much. I thought about, you know, like, should I get an MBA? Mm-hmm. So much of it was bound to my fear of um, scarcity and being able to pay my bills that I never indulged the idea of becoming an academic okay, and not having a job or like so much of my life has been lived in that way, which mm-hmm. makes me kind of sad, but it's a reality. I think a lot of people can relate. And so I've just 
tried to self-educate. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, looking back, I I um love I learning. love learning. Yeah. Love. And so, and I'm sure it would have been good for me to have, you know, a PhD or a master's. Mm-hmm. Maybe when I'm maybe in this next phase, I'll do it. <laughs> Every now and then the, the thought pops into my head. Um what would you go to school for? I don't really know. Um I well actually that's not true. If I were to go back, it would be with the idea of becoming a therapist, which like Oh, I like that for you. Thank you. That's always been like the other path I could have taken, I feel like. But when I think about the actual like getting my 15 however many, not 15, way more than that, like getting all my hours to get the this, this is this like I that sounds like a real pain in the ass. I don't I don't hate that idea though. But the actual like going to school and sitting in a class and learning yeah. and feeling like my brain is like, you know, alive, that appeals to me a lot. See, that's that's I can understand doing that and doing and getting a degree that I could apply. Um less like getting a PhD in linguistics or something. Linguistics yeah. or theology or something. Like I'd rather just sort of self-direct mm-hmm. but but i like the idea of you becoming a therapist i mean it's there if, if i need it <laughs> yeah we need more therapists yeah um we also apparently need more veterinarians oh that's um, that would be a tough job for me i couldn't do that no yeah. no euthanizing animals Mm-mm, i think that's a large part of it but other stuff too but yeah no i could not do that, but it does seem, according to TikTok, there's quite a shortage nowadays. Oh my god! People are I leaving love, the field. You really? love TikTok uh, acquired knowledge. I love your TikTok acquired knowledge. <laughs> oh my god! Ask me anything about anything? the No, ask me anything about like the field of medical aesthetics. So, like, I watch so much stuff about like Botox and fillers and that. I don't know why I find it like very soothing to watch that's all like all i watch and then also dog stuff oh so yeah ask me anything about botox or dog stuff i'm just kidding um all right tell everyone where they can find you okay plug your stuff all right so my book is on our best behavior the seven deadly sins and the price women pay to be good available wherever you get your books and my podcast is called pulling the thread available wherever you get your podcasts. And then my substack is elisluenan.substack.com. And my Instagram is elisluenan. And I have a TikTok, but I'm terrible at TikTok. I'm way Mm. too boring for TikTok. I also don't post TikToks, but you can follow me there uh, because, you know, occasionally I do. It's the Allison Rosen. Everywhere else, I'm at Allison Rosen. If you like what you're hearing, or even if you don't, just make sure you're subscribed. Leave us a nice comment. Click five stars. It helps the show. Tell your friends. I already mentioned patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Oh, also, I have merch. It's been a long time coming, but I have merch. And if you go to AllisonRosen.com, click on the link or the banner at the top that says my merch store is live and go there and check it out. T-shirts, mugs, uh, hoodies, tank tops, notebooks, water bottles, and more coming soon. Thank you again, Elise. This was, oh, and also I have a Substack, which you can, oh, I don't think I have a link anymore on my <laughs> website because I replaced the banner with the merch store stuff. Well, you know what? If you follow me on social media, I'll be posting about it, but it's, it's I think it's Allison M. Rosen.substack, but it, I, 
but it might be Alison Rosen dot Substack. So subscribe to one of those. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's someone else. I don't know. This was so much fun. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. You matter. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Alison Rosen show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Alison Rosen. Best friend.